The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Why don't we go ahead and start tonight? Um, it's good to see all of you here. Uh, this is our last uh, Acts Polity class, um, so it's a historic occasion. Next week we have um, what would have been one of the most exciting church conferences in recent memory. Now it won't be um, uh, because we're dealing with this in August. It seemed best to us and uh, one of the better decisions that I've made in, in a long time to slow this whole thing down and have, take time to have this class and have questions and answers and generally get bored with the topic before we deal with it in August. So um, that's what's going on now. That's just facetious. But, uh, you know, to give the church ample time to look at the new bylaws and um, to think it through. So, uh, But there will be a church conference um, next Wednesday. And uh, I do want to announce to you that at that time, we'll be presenting uh, two uh, candidates for the director of uh, urban ministry and college ministry at that time and be voting on them. And so you'll have a chance to meet them. Um, so you won't want to miss that. So that'll be, that'll be good and uh, other aspects of uh, just church life. So get the word out. I mean, members should know uh, when our church conferences are. They're really regularly you know, scheduled in, in uh, uh, February and May and August and November. But um, uh, is it a sin if they don't come? Not necessarily. I would not make that sweeping statement. I would not say that. Could be. Could be a sin. Depends what you do instead. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> At any rate, so, um, but that's next week, and uh, just uh, looking forward to that very much. And then the week after that, we will have the first of three <coughs> Q&A sessions on this topic. Now, I leave a little time at the end of every session uh, for questions and answers. Uh, this will be nothing but Q&A, and we're going to do our best uh, to, to uh, <coughs> be fully available to the congregation for that, <coughs> and to... Uh, excuse me, <clears throat> to prime the pump uh, by uh, giving certain themes to the evening. Um, so we're going to have three of those questions and answer times, the first in, in two weeks, uh, and then I forget the dates, but one in, in, in June and one in July, something like that. And uh, the dates will be well publicized. Our desire is to be fully available to everyone in the congregation for any questions that they may have. And the, and the evenings will have uh, two um, focal points, really. Um, the issue of of plurality of elders as a polity, biblically, uh, in history, practically, all those things. But then there's the bylaws themselves uh, that are going to become our church's operating document. And so, you know, we might have it right theoretically, but maybe haven't done a great job bringing it over into the bylaws. There may be details or issues that you may have questions about. And those will be informal times. There's no need for Robert's Rules of Order because the document hasn't been presented yet to the church. That will happen a week before the August church conference. So, you know, if good recommendations are made, you know, uh, the ministerial staff and deacons will take them under advisement and look at them and uh, make changes to the draft. And that's what it still is, just a draft. And that, and that you don't have to come to the Q&A sessions to make those kind of suggestions. Uh, if you have any kind of suggestions or thoughts about the uh, bylaws, uh, you can make those suggestions anytime. Uh, and uh, we'll write them down and look at them. Um, so it's all still in draft form, uh, as it should be. 
Um, but I think you all realize also that, that that document probably won't change a lot between now and August when it gets acted on, so it's good to read it. So I am urging you, if you haven't read it yet, I mean, it's not the most exciting thing to read, I'll acknowledge. It is bylaws, all right, after all. But these are important things, and so it's just part of the duty and responsibility of a member to be up on what, what kinds of things. Um, I think it would just be, it, it wouldn't be helpful for you to like read it the night before the church conference in August and suddenly have major questions or issues with it when so many opportunities are being made available to the church. You will be well, well within your rights to bring up amendments or questions or problems at the church conference, but we're, we're trying to forestall a lot of that by these Q&A sessions. So again, two, two issues, Pol- uh, polity itself, plurality of elders, what that looks like biblically, historically, practically, all that. And secondly, the document itself, um, the bylaws that are being presented and that will at some point be formally presented to the church as a motion to change our, our operating document. Okay? So that will be the first of those will be in two weeks, and then one, I believe, in June and one in, in July. So get the word out uh, concerning those, and please come and read uh, the document ahead of time so that if you have questions, you can ask them. And uh, it won't be hard to stump us, I don't think, you know, if, you, if you're asking, well, like, gee, you know, that's a good idea or a good thought or whatever, but... Uh, we want to work it all out together as a congregation. Now, you have two documents in front of you tonight, and so we have our work cut out for us, but uh, this is our last session, so we'll, we'll get as far as we can on these things tonight. I want to divide our time between two issues. Uh, one is uh, elders in Baptist history, uh, and the second is just practical questions. The second is a document I wrote and shared with the deacons already, uh, going through just different kind of front burner questions that people might tend to ask. Many of these things I've already leaked out in the teaching over the last you know, number of weeks um, and so uh, this is this. I put my name on this document. I especially put my name on it um, because these are my answers to the questions. There's nothing finally authoritative about these answers. Uh, this is an, uh, this is just my sense of what's the best answer to each of these questions. And probably in two weeks, I'm going to give these same questions again without any of my answers, but just out there uh, for you to think about. Um, to me, I, I just have a, a kind of a nightmare scenario in these Q&A times is that everybody will come and nobody will say anything, <laughs> you know, and that won't be of any use. I, I, it's really good for us to come asking good questions. So um, I'll probably make those questions available and you can come with your own. Well, let's start with elders in Baptist history tonight. Um, and the, the issue in front of us here is the question, is it Baptist? You know, our, our plurality of elders, is that is that Baptist? All right. Um, doesn't sound Baptist to me, you know, it sounds Presbyterian, a kind of a creeping Presbyterianism coming in here, little by little. Uh, is that what's happening? And so the main purpose is to refute the objection concerning plural elders, but it's not Baptist. And, uh, you know, you're going to have, I'm going to give you three basic answers uh, to this issue historically. And they're all right there. This is the, you get these three main points, you get what I'm going to say, all right? Uh, the documentation that I give, I've gotten from friends that have done more work on this than I have. Uh, you could spend a ton of time on this. There's, Baptist history is a big, full, rich thing, 400 years or more, really, depending how you look at it. Uh, if you're going to mark it from the time of the English Baptists, you're going to go back to the Anabaptists before that, or, you know, as some would do, all the way back to the time of John the Baptist. I don't know, but, uh, you know, uh, just there have always been Baptists. It all depends how you look at it. But uh, at any rate, I don't, this, is, this is just a very short document to show some basic things. That's all. And uh, the three answers are going to be first... The Baptist history shows many congregations had plural elders and, and continue to have plural, plural elders. Many congregations. All right. Secondly, Baptist history shows the majority of congregations did not. All right. Um, so if it sounds strange to you or haven't seen it before or whatever, that shouldn't surprise you because most, uh, if you're going to use that language, I guess most Baptist congregations 
across history haven't had plurality of elders. Um, but thirdly, Baptist history rightly emphasizes Bible over history anyway. Okay, I mean, you can prove that pretty obviously from just the Baptist mo- uh, movement itself. <clears throat> Baptist movement sprang up out of whole cloth just from people reading the New Testament and saying that isn't right. This, we need to kind of start our own thing here. That's what the Anabaptists did. That's what the English Baptists and Holland did. It's, it's uh, again and again. And, and so there's lots of squabbling among Baptists saying, we had nothing to do with you know, Smith and Helwys. We came up with this our own. We, we were in a valley in Wales somewhere and we read the New Testament and that, we, came up, we knew the Catholics weren't right. And, we st- and that's just what Baptists do. It's Baptists in the Bible, you know. And so they're not tremendously concerned with history. All right. But I think there's enough wisdom to know that, yes, God does act in history. We're not starting from scratch every new generation. And so there is, and I'm one, a Baptist who loves history and who wants to learn from history and not just from Baptists in history. So there you have the three answers. There have been, throughout Baptist history, congregations that held a plurality of elders. And that's really not that hard to prove. And so uh, if that helps you, if you're encouraged about that, oh, well, then it's good. Then we can do it. Okay, I, I might challenge that way of thinking, all right? But if you're like, well, I'm not going to do it unless there was some Baptist congregation in the past that did it, I, I would want to have that conversation with anyway based on the third point, all right? But I think we all acknowledge that if we would be the first Baptist congregation that did it, that would cause us to pause. I mean, wouldn't it cause you to pause if we were the first ever Baptist congregation? It doesn't mean that we would continue to pause. We might just go right on ahead on biblical authority. But at any rate... You know, that's going to be the answer. Uh, number one is Baptist history shows many congregations have had it and continue to have plural elders. And secondly, I don't think it's too hard to prove that this has always been a bit of an uneasy relationship between Baptists and plural elders. It's not, it's not something universally embraced. It's not something all the congregations had it. So even though many of these groups that would get together and write confessions and publish those confessions were well aware of plurality of elders, most of the delegates to those meetings didn't come from those kinds of churches. Uh, they were just aware that other congregations across the hill or in a valley near them had that kind of thing and that they had to be aware or some of their brother delegates or messengers had, were coming from those and they needed to uh, give allowance for it. And so it would be in the confessions a permission of sorts, as though the, the congregations needed any permission, but a permission of sorts to have plural elders. But it's not a statement that most of those congregations that were represented by those confessions had plural elders. So that's what we're going to find. And then, you know, I'm not going to say very much at all about the third point. Actually, literally, I, on this document, nothing. Uh, but that is the primacy of Scripture, that Baptists should give Scripture top priority over um, uh, history, um, not history over Scripture. So let's start with the first point. Many Baptist congregations had plural elders, and many continue to have plural elders. <clears throat> let's start with the English Baptist uh, congregations. Um, most, many, well, I would say many, um, Baptist historians start with the movement uh, with Smith and Helwys in uh, 1608 in Amsterdam as the beginning of modern Baptist history. It is contested, but that's what Baptists do. They contest things. So uh, maybe I should just say people. All right, it isn't just Baptists. But, um, you know, it's controversial. But at any rate, um, there have been many Baptist movements in, uh, since the Reformation uh, that trace their heritage directly from personal reading of the New Testament and desire to be faithful to Scripture. You're definitely going to see that with the Welsh Baptists, German Baptists, Waldensians. Even the Anabaptists of Switzerland sprang from the Reform movement of Ulrich Zwingli uh, by the same means. Namely, we are reading the New Testament and we don't find infant baptism in it. 
or we're reading the New Testament and we don't see such and such Catholic heritage or tradition type thing in it, and so we're not going to do that. So that's always been the approach of the mentality, etc. Now, uh, my friend Sean Wright, Associate Professor of Church History at, uh, at Southern Seminary, gives six lines of evidence from church history, Baptist history, that shows that congregations were well familiar with, and many Baptist congregations did have, plurality of elders. First, we have the early confessions, uh, 1644. That's a very short time after the 1608 origin of the modern Baptist movement. The first London Confession of Faith allows for multiple elders in one church. The 1646 edition of this confession says, quote, Every church hath power given them from Christ for their well-being to choose among themselves meet persons for elders and deacons, being qualified according to the word, as those which uh, Christ hath appointed in his uh, testament for the feeding, government, serving, and building up of his uh, church. Now, notice the, um, the word person. So it's plural. The plurality of elders then at least allowed. Um, every church hath power given them, you see. So again, these confessional groups are coming together, giving the church what they perceive that the church already has and doesn't need permission from the group that got together to write the confession. In other words, whether that group came up with that same conviction or not, those congregations were going to do what they thought was best anyway. But uh, basically, you can see the plurality of elders right in that plural word, persons. Secondly, there are examples of early particular Baptist congregations with a plurality of elders. By the way, particular Baptist would be what we call Calvinistic Baptist. That's generally what that means. So Calvinistic Baptists, um, particular Baptist congregations with a plurality of elders. When John Bunyan, who many Baptists didn't consider Baptist enough because of his willingness to embrace open communion, um, assumed the pastor of the church, the two previous pastors resigned the pastoral office to him and were considered afterwards as elders or ministers. So there's uh, Bunyan's congregation, and uh, there's plurality of elders there. The influential Baptist uh, pastor, William Kiffin, was also open to the notion of multiple elders. In 1690, Richard Adams was ordained as an elder in conjunction with Brother William Kiffin. Uh, Sixteen years later, the church called a brother to serve as co-elder with Adams, who was instructed to recite uh, at the ordination that my brother Mark Key is by this church appointed or ordained as joint elder or pastor overseer with myself over her. Uh, Sean Wright, by the way, who, who put this together, uh, retain the old, the archaic English spellings in here. That's why it's like that. By the way, this is the nature of, of church historical work. I mean, you're looking at old documents that, that were gotten, gotten out of an archive. I'd be, I didn't do this today, but I'd be interested in going up to our historical room and finding out you know, what it was like back in 1845, what the, what the uh, polity was here. I have a suspicion of what it was like, um, probably like most Baptist churches at the time. Um, but I'd like to find out. I just didn't do that. But that's what you're doing with, with history. You're, you're looking at old documents and you're trying to read through it and discern things. And I'm very grateful. Let me tell you something. You should all be grateful to the brothers that have a love for that kind of thing um, because it's incredibly laborious. Um, I, I went and visited at Southern Seminary Greg Wills' office. He's a church historian there. And his desk was just piled high with just pamphlets and old papers and all kinds of stuff. And he's just reading through them and just sifting through and trying to discern the truth of Baptist movements or other things going on back there. So, you know, you, it's really like an archaeological dig. And you just spend a lot of time looking for things that just it doesn't help you. And then you find something. You find a statement, a letter written, or, or something in a sermon. And it says, okay, there, that, that congregation had plurality of elders. And that's what you're starting to assemble, that kind of evidence. It takes a long time. It really does. Um, and that's what they've done here. Uh, third, 
uh, various Baptist congregations question their local associations about the validity of having plural elders. Uh, thus, uh, this, I think it says, must show the question of uh, plural elders was a live issue for them. The Abingdon Association, for example, in 1654 made a statement suggesting that they were reacting against the teaching ruling elder distinction. That's going to be uh, kind of a big theme again and again. Quote, that the office of pastors, elders, and overseers or bishops is but one and the same, and that it is the duty of every elder as well to teach as to rule the church whereof he is an elder. The following year, they responded to a brother who's, uh, who disagreed with their opinion about the identity of teaching with ruling elders by saying, one, that the elders, overseers, and pastors of the church of Ephesus were all one, as appears in uh, Acts 20:17 with verse 28, and that it is the duty of the elders to feed the flock of God and take oversight thereof, 1 Peter 5, 1, and that it appears also in Titus 1, 5 that elders and bishops are but several names of the same officers, two, that elders are to be able to teach, 1 Timothy 3, 2 and Titus 1, 9, and three, that therefore the saying of the apostle in 1 Timothy 5, 17, that's where it says the elders who rule well, Remember how I made the comment that some have said that Presbyterians get their whole polity out of one verse? That's 1 Timothy 5.17, which seems to make a distinction between teaching elders and ruling elders. Uh, the saying of the apostle in 1 Timothy 5.17 must not be conceived to imply that there were elders ruling well who were yet not at all exercised in the word and doctrine, but rather to signify that the elders' pains in the word and doctrine was a special thing for which he was to be honored. All right, it seems that in this association, at least, eldership was a hot topic. And that's all that Sean's going to say. Uh, he's actually, his basic thesis, and we'll get to that, is that uh, Baptists have always had an uneasy relationship with plurality of elders. It wasn't they all embraced it and looked on it as a matter of, of faith that, that they would all be that way. But at least we can say that in, at the uh, Abingdon Association in 1654, there were numbers of congregations that had plural elders, and they were associating together with churches that didn't, and the churches that didn't were trying to understand it. So that at least proves it was around. And that's all we're doing in this first point is saying that there were Baptist congregations that had plural elders at the time. Fourth, a prominent church in Bristol, the Broadmead Baptist Church, had a plurality of elders. For example, when their pastor, whom they would call their teaching elder, was in prison because of persecution, uh, since they were Baptist, they had ruling elders who were able to step up and fulfill many of the tasks except to administer the Lord's Supper that the teaching elder had previously done. Their records uh, include this entry, quote, said Joseph Clark and James Lewis were at a day of prayer admitted members of this congregation, though we had no pastor, by our two ruling elders laying before uh, them in the presence of the church uh, their duties to God, the church, and the world. So again, that's a, a clear statement that there was uh, at least uh, these teaching elders, I'm uh, uh, sorry, ruling elders, though they didn't have a pastor who I think they would call a teaching elder. Um, fifth, many of the churches represented at the Baptist London Assembly that adopted the Second London Confession of Faith. That, by the way, is the, is the greatest of all the uh, uh, Calvinistic statements of faith. And many uh, churches that openly embrace the doctrines of grace or Reformed theology that are Baptistic embrace the 1689 Second London Confession. Many of you may be aware of the uh, Presbyterian Westminster Confession. Basically, that's what they call the baptized version. They went through and found all, all the uh, articles that they could not agree with concerning infant baptism and, and Presbyterian polity and rewrote them and changed them. Uh, but in doing so, they left evidence that there were many among them who believed in a plurality of elders still. Um, and so we see that. In Second London in the late 1680s, 1689, uh, had a plurality of elders. Uh, James Renahan concludes his careful study of the ecclesiology of the churches represented there by noting, quote, the majority of the particular Baptists were committed to a plurality and parity of elders in their churches. He goes on tellingly to note, however, 
This is not to say that all of the churches had such a plurality. In fact, many did not. Okay, he's going to say then the majority of those at the Second London Convention had plurality of elders. I'm just saying that it's not true that a majority of all Baptist congregations have them. Just those that were assembled there, the majority they had, but not everyone. So again, you see, we're coming up with the same picture. It gets, it gets a little bit sharper the more you look at it. Were there Baptist congregations that had plurality of elders? Absolutely. Uh, was it most of them? Absolutely not. Uh, did most of them know about it? At that point, yes. Uh, do most of the 20th century Baptists, Southern Baptists, know about plurality of elders? No, definitely not. It becomes then kind of a new thing, like out of nowhere. Where is this coming from? And they, they can surmise it can only be coming from Calvinistic doctrine and Presbyterianism. It can't come from Baptist history. Well, that is not true. That is not true. It has been forgotten, and, and Mark Dever and others have done some good work in philosophizing on why it was forgotten in the 20th century. What happened little by little, we'll get there in a minute. But um, at any rate, this is Sean. Uh, just taking us through six lines of reasoning. Uh, six, the 1689 confession statement on the church certainly allows for a plurality of elders in a local congregation. It says, a particular church gathered and completely organized according to the mind of Christ consists of officers and members and the officers appointed by Christ to be chosen and set apart by the church, so called and gathered, for the particular administration of ordinances and the execution of power or duty, which he entrusts uh, them with or calls them to, to be continued to the end of the world are bishops or elders and deacons. By the way, that's a good sense of the 1689 London. Very wordy, um, very carefully wrought. Uh, really quite a remarkable statement. Going back really to the Westminster divines who did an incredible job with uh, their statement of faith. Quite, quite remarkable. Bishops or elders then clearly warrants a plurality of elders in a congregation. So by the end of the 17th century, we see that there were examples of English particular Baptists who had and advocated having a plurality of elders in their churches. This becomes very important in the subsequent historical arguments that are made uh, about plural elders. Ignore those next two little squiggles there as though they don't exist. All right. Baptist congregations in America had plural elders. So first, we've been over in England, uh, over there. Uh, now, what about uh, here in the colonies? Let's say at that point, the colonies. Uh, the Philadelphia Association, who were particular Baptists, they had, they, were, they had minutes from their meetings from 1707 to 1807. So, again, thanks be to God for the brothers that sit and read minutes of meetings that occurred back in 1711. I mean, is that what you want to spend your time doing? But... Um, at any rate, this was the most prominent association of Baptists that there was in the colonial uh, period. Um, the, there are ample evidence of plurality of elders in many of their congregations. Phil Newton talks about this in Elders in Congregational Life. In 1738, a question before the association sought to determine whether a ruling elder who had been set apart by the laying on of hands and who should afterwards be called by the church by reason of his gifts to the word and doctrine, namely as a pastor, must again be ordained by the imposition of hands. And the answer they gave was affirmative. They almost have kind of two different ordinations at that point. Yeah, that's a debatable issue. There's lots of debatable issues about that. But the point there is not did they decide the right thing. The point is clearly plurality of elders was an issue. It came up in 1738, and they're trying to, trying to work it through. Uh, Newton says a cursory reading of the minutes clearly demonstrates the commonality of plural eldership among 18th century Baptists in the Northeast. Basically there, you know what he's doing? He's saying, please take my word for it. If you don't want to take his word for it, then go find the Philadelphia Associational Notes and read it for yourself. For me, I'm happy to just take the brother's word for it, okay? Frankly, how many Baptist congregations do we need to prove the point? All right, the point is it was known. They had it back then. 
and that not everyone had it. We've kind of already established that, and we don't really need to go on much beyond it, beyond that at that point. First uh, Southern Baptist Convention President W.B. Johnson taught that Christ strictly required each church to have a plural eldership. Now, that's a much stricter position than most of these uh, have had, but it is significant that he is the first president of the Southern Baptist Convention. In other words, uh, a Southern Baptist who argues that plurality of elders isn't Southern Baptist is just... Uh, you know, lost something there at that point. W.B. Johnson, the first president, advocates that this is what Christ has ordained for the church, which I wouldn't go that far. I would say that this is the pattern established, um, and, but I wouldn't say that a congregation is sinning if they understand the verses that we, that we uh, read a little bit differently. I wouldn't go that far. But, you know, I think we can still have our convictions and say this is what I think is the best way to understand these passages. Anyway, Johnson's work on church polity, namely the gospel developed through the government and order of the churches of Jesus Christ, 1846, carefully outlines biblical evidence of plural eldership in first century churches. By the way, that document is, re- is, is reprinted entirely in Mark Dever's uh, edited book, Polity. And if you want to read what, what W.B. Johnson wrote, um, you can get that book, Polity. You can just go to Amazon.com and you can get it. So what they've done is they've spared you the trouble of making the trip to go to the dusty archive rooms. They've brought them out for you, and you can just read them at that point. So there's W.B. Johnson. Uh, Dever presents more evidence in his booklet by Whose Authority. It's right back there. Okay, so if you want to go through that, I've re- recounted it quickly here. I'm just not going to read it anymore. But you just go back and pick up uh, from page 18 through 21. He gives you a lot of evidence uh, concerning uh, Baptists in um, plural, plurality of, of elders in Baptist life. Summary of evidence, many Baptist congregations in history have had a plurality of elders, uh, and the practice were well known at least until the beginning of the 20th century. Many modern-day Baptist uh, congregations have plural elders. What I did here is I just listed all the pastors I know that are pastors of Baptist churches that are part of plural elders. That's just what I did running out of time. Uh, you know, you can get lots of anecdotal evidence. Uh, there are churches right around us. There are people, there are well-known churches. Uh, John MacArthur is part of a plural elder situation there. Different, different structure there because I think it's an elder rule rather than elder lead situation. But uh, at any rate, um, I'm not sure about Alistair Begg, but I think there's plurality of elders there. This is not an unheard of thing among Baptists in the present time, Okay. Um, however, the majority of Baptist congregations did not have plural elders, and Sean does a good job, I think, saying that Baptists have had, at best, a precarious relationship with plural elders. Uh, in other words, it shouldn't surprise you to look around at the Yates Association or, or the North Carolina uh, Baptist uh, Convention or the Southern Baptist Convention and find the overwhelming majority of Baptist churches do not have plurality of elders. So uh, that's what I'm history bears that out, that most, most congregations did not. Uh, the move tended to be more toward a senior pastor and a board of deacons with committees. That tended to be the general approach. And that's the standard uh, practice among Baptists today. And Sean goes through uh, substantiating the thesis why. I'm not going to go through all this. Basically, in effect, he's saying just because the, the confessions showed that it was permitted to have plural elders didn't mean that most of them did have it. They actually somewhat struggled with it. Uh, they weren't sure that it was biblical or they had to be persuaded it was biblical, that kind of thing. So they've wrestled with it across time. And he explains, I think, at the bottom of page 6, the thesis of why it is that they had an uneasy relationship. And I think these words are well written, so I just brought them over in, in a block quote. This is Sean Wright's writing here. In my estimation, there are at least five reasons that Baptists did not uh, adopt the practice of plural elders. The first and most important one is that Baptists were congregationalists and they did not think that a plural elder system could be reconciled with congregational authority. They didn't see any way they could do it, and so they, uh, they said it's either one or the other. You're either congregationalists or you believe in plural, plural elders. Uh, second, 
and supporting the first, Baptists develop a complex hermeneutic for interpreting plurality passages in the New Testament. This allows them to favor the Scripture's teaching on congregational authority over the Scripture's teaching on plurality. Third, Baptist confessions did not teach that churches should have a plurality of elders. They were intentionally ambiguous, I think. And this ambiguity worked toward the demise of plurality over time. They're ambiguous because they're permitting different churches to have their polities. They were, they were associating... One of the basic Baptist principles is autonomy of the local uh, church does not preclude cooperation for mission. Actually, Baptist churches should cooperate to do mission when they can. So what that means is that autonomous local churches were coming together disagreeing on things but doing it agreeably and still coming together and pooling their funds to, to send missionaries or to do various other works that no, none of those congregations could afford to do alone. And so they would find ways they could agree. And so their confessions tended to be more broad uh, than their individual you know, convictions would, would allow. All right. Fourth, the practice of prominent Baptist leaders, some of whom explicitly opposed plural elders, worked against having multiple elders in the church. And fifth, and this is pretty big, Baptists lacked enough qualified men who could serve as elders in the congregation. Uh, you know, you look at, at the history of our country and the, and the, the westward move, okay, uh, from, from the coastline, the, the, the 13 colonies, and then moving, you know, the, the west, you know, uh, the, the wild west was, you know, Kentucky at one point. You know, and, and Daniel Boone with the Cumberland Gap and all that, that's, that was wild country out there. And so uh, even a place like Durham would be kind of frontierish a bit. And the churches were going to be small. And sometimes there were circuit-riding pastors that would, there would only be one pastor for five or six congregations. And it just led to a different kind of polity. There just didn't seem to be enough qualified men. But yet W.B. Johnson in his writing said, I acknowledge this, but it still should be a goal that you're working towards. So you think about church planning uh, situations overseas, um, it's still in your mind that that's what you're heading toward. You want to see godly men raised up and, and, and shaped and trained. And one of the things I found in my reading is that a lot of times churches don't find elders because they're not looking for them. It's not a theme of the church. But to me, it's so big where it says in 1 Timothy 3.1, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a good thing. The corollary of that from a congregational perspective is, therefore, the church should be set up to help the young man do it. The church should be set up to help a young man develop to become an elder in the future. And so a church like ours established in 1845 should have an ample array of men prepared and ready and trained for that work. So if you're in a church planning situation, you may not have it right away. And so you might be in a situation where you're in transition. You know it can't be ideal yet. Um, but that's what you're heading toward. Okay, history. did that really quickly and we were even later than I wanted to be. But questions about history. Three basic points. Remember, just you get the three right at the, at the top. Many, many Baptist congregations did have plurality of elders. Secondly, most, it seems, did not. Uh, thirdly, Baptists have always looked primarily to Scripture anyway, not primarily to history. Okay? The three points. Susan. This isn't about okay. Right. Well, I think you're right in saying it really is a subset of general discipleship, you know, and uh, I think Second uh, Timothy 2, 2 implies that there's going to be a training of elders. The things that you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable men who will be qualified to teach others also. Well, that word qualified implies a pattern of qualification. 
I would say that that breaks up into the two tuposes, which is a pattern of lifestyle and a pattern of doctrine. So we're looking for two things from these men, how they live and what they teach. And those are the two things that come together. And so I think the idea in 2 Timothy 2.2, men who will be qualified to teach others or study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. There's a sense of qualification even of Timothy there. So it's a good question. For me, I have in my mind a kind of concentric circle or maybe a pyramidal kind of sense of general discipleship of men. Uh, secondly, a second level would be uh, a training of future elders who could serve in this church. And thirdly, and more narrowly, a, a training of future vocational ministers who would spend their full time serving the church as preachers of the Word of God. So those are three things that I think our church should be well-suited to do. The third one, especially because of our proximity to Southeastern Seminary, that it would be good for us to be a good training ground for future senior pastors who are going to leave this area and go, so we already have it. We already have people on our prayer list who have gone from our church who are now uh, senior pastors at other places. All right, let's uh, turn the corner and get to practical issues related to biblical eldership. Now, again, my answers to these questions are not the final word by any stretch of the imagination, so I'm not incredibly troubled if we don't get through all of this because I'm going to reprint the questions only for our Q&A time in two weeks. And so if you want me or the church as a whole or some other leaders to take another crack at these questions, it just these seem to be questions that were worth answering or asking anyway about plurality of elders. So this is the more practical side of what it's going, what it's going to look like in the life of our church. All right, question number one. Doesn't FBC already have elders in our ministerial staff? Why then do we need to make a change? So that would be the first question. Um, the first question on the sheet. Maybe not the first question in your mind, but Q1. All right, answer. There are two faulty assumptions to the statement that we already have plurality of elders. One is that everyone on our ministerial staff should automatically be an elder. And the other uh, is either that no layman, that is no seminary, non-seminary trained, non-vocational man, should ever be an elder, or that laymen can exert equally effective leadership as deacons. Our present uh, structure thus either lowers the role of layman in leading the church too low or lifts the role of deacon too high. All right, so that's, that's either you're not going to have layman, whatever you want to call those. That's, by the way, not a great term. Phil, Phil Newton argues against it. Um, they're different a little clumsier titles, but it implies there's almost this sacramental view of ordination, which I don't hold and we as Baptists don't tend to hold. Um, but aside from that, you know what I mean by laymen. These are people that have secular jobs as their focal point of providing for their families, uh, but they also have gifts that enable them to lead the church. And so the thing is, what do you do about men like that? Do you tell them to go to seminary? <laughs> you tell them they should have no leadership or influence in the church? Well, generally not. They're going to have leadership and influence in the church. They generally have tended to do it as deacons. And for me, it just didn't seem the proper use of the terminology. Concerning non-elder level ministerial staff, uh, it is not right to assume that every vocational laborer in the gospel at a local church should be an elder. Like, for example, next week, as I mentioned, we're going to be voting in two director positions. Now, that title isn't found in Scripture, but the idea is that these aren't elder level positions. These are people that are going to be fulfilling a function and helping our church. We've had interns before. We've had others. And it's not true that everyone who receives a paycheck from a church to do uh, ministerial type work should be an elder. That is not an, uh, that's, not, that's not true. And uh, most churches uh, in their bylaws that have plurality of elders allow for what they call something like additional staff or whatever. And these would be people that would uh, serve certain functions as the elders uh, saw fit. Um, also in smaller uh, local churches, 
uh, which cannot afford multiple staff. This structure basically overturns the New Testament pattern of plurality of elders. In such churches, then, there's one pastor and multiple deacons. All right, C, concerning deacons as lay, uh, lay leaders like elders, I do not believe that, according to the New Testament, deacons should be exerting a leadership role. But I do believe that laymen can and do exert a leadership role in the local church. If laymen are to exert a leadership role in the local church, it should be with the proper title, elder, pastor, overseer, bishop, etc. All those are interchangeable terms. We've already argued basically for elder being the best of them, um, but they're all interchangeable terms. Okay, so that's the first question. Um, any comments on this? I mean, we've, it's 708. We can get through as many of these as you'd like. Um, any comments on this or questions? Don't we already have elders on our ministerial staff? Why do we need to make the change? Basic idea is that there are godly laymen who can lead, who haven't been to seminary. How then should they lead? Should they lead as, as deacons or should they not lead? That's those are the options that you have really right now. Okay, let's go on to the second question. What problems are we currently having with our church leadership structure such that we need to make a change? Well, um, first part is there are presently five folk. How do you pronounce that? Foci? Foci? Of, I, I wrote this. I don't know how to pronounce it. Focuses. Okay. Focuses. All right? There, we just go wrong in the Latin. Um, foci. Okay, we'll go foci. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> moving on. I love being part of, a, part of a Baptist church. All right, moving on. For my part, I wouldn't mind arguing over that one. Um, that would be fine. If we're going to argue on something, that would be a good one to do it. All right, anyway, five, five of those, um, power and control. The uh, pastoral staff, the committees, the deacons, the church council, and the congregation. Those are all in our present bylaws. What's not spelled out is how they should relate to one another. How, do, how then do they relate to one another? By, generally by tradition, by good relationships with one another, by seeing a job that needs to be done and deciding we need to do it together. But there's a lot of gray areas. I think a very good example of something that fits into a gray area and becomes kind of difficult to know how best to do it is the master plan that we came up with, all right? The master plan basically is a plan for long-range changes of the church. Those plans could be extremely expensive. Um, It is not right or true that, um, you know, any group in the church should take that plan and gather together a faction or a group of people saying, "I, I really think we need such and such done and go out and get a private contractor's quote and then bring that to the floor of the church. That would result in chaos. And uh, if we need to raise significant amounts of money, a quarter of a million dollars, half a million dollars, or something like that, that really is a huge impact on the life of the church. So therefore, it really is a spiritual decision uh, what we're going to invest our time in and our money in. So therefore, that ends up kind of fitting in between everything. Do you see? I mean, whose job is it? Nobody really knows. And so that ends up being kind of a test case of, well, what is our polity then? Uh, how should we do it? So we have all these different things. The church council is still in the books but hasn't met for years. What is the church council? It's the, it's the chairs of each of the committees coming together to discuss anything and everything to do with the church. Well, I was so allergic to this just because I couldn't find any example of it whatsoever in the New Testament that uh, the last thing that's been said about church council, somebody asked me, when is our next church council meeting? I said, it's going to be a while. So we're still in that era of waiting for the next one. It's going to be a while. I, it was purposely vague. Um, I just, To me, they would be functioning very much like elders without any of having met any of the biblical qualifications. 
Uh, so, but they're still in the books. I chose to let sleeping dogs lie, if you can believe it. Um, we'll just leave the church council alone until we look at the whole big polity uh, question. Because if I uh, roused that dog, we'd start having church council meetings again. So I decided to just let it be. And I'm saying this very openly in front of you, but uh, to me, I just uh, do not believe in it. I don't think it's a good thing. Um, so uh, that's another issue. Present law, bylaws also gives... Um, uh, present bylaws redefine the role of deacon to function somewhat like lay elders. I already mentioned that. Uh, the present bylaws also give a great deal of authority to committees, which do not exist in the New Testament at all. Though the church does have the function, or sorry, the freedom, sorry, to organize committees for certain functions, see the next question, I do not believe that a committee-led church is a biblical pattern. Now, furthermore, since committees do not appear in the Bible, the role of women in leadership then becomes murky. Turn the page. Uh, present bylaws make the pastor's role unclear vis-a-vis the committees and deacons. Bottom line, who really has the right to make decisions, especially in trailblazing situations, uh, when new situations arise? People become a little bit hesitant, even senior pastors. I mean, do I have the right to do this, this kind of thing? Uh, among people of goodwill, which we presently do have, thanks be to God, this murky command and control structure still manages to function acceptably and progress can be made. But the system is open to abuse. More significantly, is this, this structure is not the one set up in the New Testament, as we've already made, made the case. All right? Question number three, what will happen to the committees? Um, as mentioned above, committees can still play, play a role in the life of the church. The elders will have the right to organize committees for various purposes, but those committees will report to the elders who have the right to people them and task them as they see fit. Um, there, the, thus, there will be no need for a nominating committee for the elders will call into existence whatever committees they choose for as long as they deem it best, put the people on those committees uh, that the Lord leads them to put on. So the uh, committees, instead of reporting directly to the congregation, then are reporting to the elders. And again, our bylaws, uh, new bylaws, uh, would permit for committees. They're just not mentioned much. Um, they're, they're there. They're not forbidden. They're not encouraged. They're just, it's just possible. And my feeling is that they perhaps will be. Uh, some, some churches that just don't have any committees at all very much lean on deacons to do a lot of things. In other words, the deacons are tasked with lots of practical, physical ministry type stuff. Now, they just see that as like elders are doing the spiritual ministry and the deacons are just doing practical, physical ministries. And so therefore, like a properties committee, it's really a deacon function, they would see it that way. Um, any of the committee, you think about the committees, it, it would be deacons or deaconesses that would look after that. We presently have a rose committee, so we could have deacons, deaconesses perhaps. Uh, I'm not precluding that a man would be interested in roses, please. I'm not saying that, all right? Uh, rose is beautiful. It smells nice. I personally, never mind. Um, but at any rate, it would be deaconesses then perhaps that would be looking after that. That would be one approach to doing the committees. But uh, again, the document uh, allows for committees. Um, it just, uh, they would report to the elders. All right, question four. What is the nature of the relationship between the elders and the senior pastor, especially in the area of authority? Well, the elders will seek to operate by consensus and by guidance from prayer and the word. The elders as a group, having sought the Lord's will in prayer and by studying the word, will determine the general direction of the church and will together resolve whatever detailed question they think it necessary to address. No one elder, including the senior pastor, will have more intrinsic authority than another. Whoever can best marshal biblical truth and apply it to a specific situation will carry the day on that issue. I mean, that's a significant statement right there. You know, it's not a positional thing at that point. It really just has to do with making a biblical case and for the elders together hearing that case and, and sensing that it's right. The senior pastor will be an elder and will have an equal voice and vote in that process. Of course, it stands to reason that the senior pastor spending much of his time in studying the scripture and thinking about the church will be able to speak very well 
to those issues facing the church and will have, as a result, significant influence, but not because of his position per se. It's because of the arguments that he brings forward. It's because he's thought things through or studied them. But again, what he's going to be doing is he's going to be presenting a position. He's going to be making an argument. Okay? He's not going to be saying, because I said so, so to speak. That's not, that's not possible because a plurality of elders um, means a consensus among the elders has to happen for something to move ahead. However, if there's a need of, uh, for a vote among the elders, it is possible the senior pastor may be outvoted. It's not just possible, it's absolutely likely on some things he's going to be outvoted. Not because he's wrong, but just because it's an issue that there's really not a right or wrong answer to. I'll give you an example, like uh, should we have three health fairs next year instead of two? You know, that's, you know, health fair is a big, a big uh, outreach. It's a lot of energy. It would take a lot of time and effort. And some may feel one way and some others, they discuss it. They can't discuss it until forever until they're totally un- unanimous. If you're only going to be working by unanimity, uh, you can do that, but things will greatly slow down or the elders meetings will greatly lengthen. <laughs> you know, ever see that movie, 12 Angry Men? You know, that kind of thing. You're just together until we all come to consensus, you know. I don't know that that's the best approach, and so that's where votes come in, where you're like, you know, this isn't a moral issue. This is just an issue of practical ministry. We, you know, agree to disagree. You vote, and you move on. So, yeah, Tim. And what about as far as what you're going to be teaching? Um, if you're teaching through a certain book of the Bible, um, expository style teaching, right. how the elders going to, I mean, for instance, if they do not want you to teach the whole book, how does that work play itself out? Well, that's a good question, and different churches answer it different ways. Some churches just assign the pulpit ministry of the senior pastor, um, and the elders just continue to oversee that just to be sure that he's teaching faithfully, biblically, etc., and to give him encouragement and feedback, but basically allow him to decide what God is leading him to preach. Others, uh, frankly, the plurality of elders just teach on a rotating basis, frankly, and so they all kind of come together on what book they're going to be teaching together. There's just different ways to do it. So... Um, for myself, I, I tend to believe that, and I said this before, that not all teaching gifts are the same and that, um, that you don't have to be able to preach, I think, to be an elder and that not every elder will necessarily be equally gifted to get up and give a cogent you know, presentation of Scripture from, in the preaching style that we're accustomed to. So if the senior pastor is generally tasked with that, I think the churches that do task, uh, the elders that do task them, just let him do as the Lord sees you know, sees fit as he leads him, etc. Yeah, I, I would not say that the plurality of elders then gives the, the elders full right to meticulously break down and critique, you know, your transition here was, you know, I'd give you a C plus, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, that, that kind of thing. I mean, in one sense, you could say theoretically that's, but that, I just don't think that that's right. I think there's an issue of stewardship where something's assigned to you by the Lord and, and the elders are just there to be sure that the person's carrying it on in a godly way and the doctrine is right and the ministry is helpful. That's all. So, what will happen, committees? We did that. Uh, nature. All right. Let me keep going. E. However, there's a need to vote. Got that. F. Uh, once the direction of the ministry is established by the elders, it will primarily fall into the pastoral staff led by the senior pastor to put many of those things into practice on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis. Since lay elders cannot give as much time uh, to enacting the details of decisions, this will uh, rest with the pastoral staff. The elders will obviously maintain oversight on each of those issues. Now, this is a very important uh, point here. Okay. Um, the lay elders, so to speak, will have a whole bunch of other things going on in their lives than the vocational uh, ministry. And they've got a job, 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. They've got other things they have to do. Um, it really is uh, to the best interest of every, all the elders involved that a lifestyle for the lay elders that is feasible can be 
thought through and organized so that it doesn't become shrill and overwhelming to be a lay elder in this or any church. Because what's going to happen then if it becomes shrill or overwhelming, if it becomes like a 30-hour-a-week job to be an elder, a lay elder? What do you think is going to happen? What are they going to do? They're going to quit. They're going to resign, and that would not be of any advantage or benefit. So therefore, there's going to be a balance there where those that are, are there throughout the week that have more hours to give uh, will shoulder more of those, the practical burden of that shepherding ministry, but done in the spirit and the path and the course set together by the elders. You see what I'm saying? So basically, the elders will together praying in a prayerful way, determine the course, set the course, but then it's up to the ministerial staff led by the senior pastor to make it happen. And then they bring back, you know, those details back to the elders and, and say, this is what we've done, et cetera, and that's the dynamic I see. So then through the week, then, the senior pastor uh, is in authority over the ministerial staff uh, for the enacting of the decisions that the, minister, uh, the elders together came up with. And you might say, well, th- then you're wearing different hats. Yeah, you really are, but I think it, it's okay. It works. All right, so, you know, in the staff meetings, then the senior pastor... Uh, is able to give tasks and to give directions and to give, you know, commands, if you want to call it that, to say, you do this, you do that, et cetera. And, the, and there is that submission to authority there. But then when you're governing, you know, you're all sitting at the table as elders, you all have an equal voice and a vote in what those general directions are going to be. And can it work? I know that it does work like that in many churches, um, that people are able to do that. All right, so H, I already mentioned this, but the senior pastor uh, will have or can have, I would say, certain functions, especially in the pulpit ministry over which he is directly responsible. The elders will maintain a general stance of watchfulness, as I already mentioned, like the Bereans, as will the congregation. But the ongoing ministry of preaching will be the senior pastor's responsibility. Question five, what is the relationship between the authority of the other elder-level le- uh, vocational ministers, such as associate and assistant pastors, the senior pastor and the elders? I just covered that a moment ago. So you can read what I write, but um, basically on an equal footing, all the elder level ministerial staff are on equal footing at the elders meeting. But then during the week, uh, there is a division of labor that goes on. Question six, what is the relationship between the authority of the elders and that of the congregation? Uh, The congregation has the responsibility to establish elders officially in their roles and to assess if they're behaving in a manner worthy of the office. Thus, elders are voted in by the congregation and can be removed by the congregation. Uh, furthermore, the elders will rotate off from being elders at the, uh, after at most two terms and must be reinstated by the congregation. The congregation uh, will also have the responsibility. Uh, by the way, that's not precisely spoken. That's the lay elders. Um, the non-vocational elders will rotate off. That makes a big difference, by the way, if you have a family that you're trying to feed um, and you're in the ministry. So, Christy, it's okay. All right, I just didn't write this answer as accurately as I could have. All right. Yeah, that's great. A sabbatical without pay every six years. That's, uh, you know, would, would you like fries with that? And that kind of thing. I'll learn how to say that. Back to engineering, you know. So moving on from that unseemly moment. Um, the congregation also. Yes, sir. On that point, uh, as I read the document, deacons would be three years on, a year off, and they could go back on. Mm-hmm. What's the logic in having elders being two consecutive I don't know. <laughs> I don't really know. Good. I would strongly suggest. But they don't have to be. They don't have to be. Yeah. There's some, well, uh, there, there are some mental games you can play, and you yeah. wouldn't have to enter those games. Yeah. Uh, and three years is an intense time. It is. It's a good point you bring up. Often position. 
Yeah. Well, Jim, I agree. And, and you know, that's, that's one that's, you know, it's not your proverbial hill on which to die. There are different ways. Some, some um, elder scenario type churches, you're an elder for life unless you commit a sin, basically. Unless you sin your way out of it, you're an elder for life. Um, and, you know, I think there's, there's a sense, a good sense in having a sabbatical rest for the lay elders. Because a lot of these men will be very conscientious and would not want to take that rest if the church is going through some significant things or they, want to, they don't want to be derelict in their duties. Is six years too long? Maybe. You know, three years? I don't know. What about the reaffirmation vote, et cetera? There's a lot of factors that are playing in here. Um, we wrote the document and looked at the document with an eye not to our present personalities and how much we like each other, but a document that could help the church over generations. And so you had to think about you know, when people would abuse the thing, you know, and, and so you have balance of powers to some degree at that point. So there, there's a different error system with a strong lay elder-led church versus a strong vocational elder-led church. And so you, there's a, a balance there. And the way that that balance was worked out is to have a majority of lay elders at any time, but that they have to rotate off and get reaff- reaffirmed, which the, the vocational elders don't. None of those things can absolutely be like substantiated definitely from Scripture, text of Scripture, but just seem to make sense, like it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. So that's a good question and, and it's something we could continue thinking through. And uh, if the church wanted to make some changes there, that, that's certainly free to do. Yes, sir. Are they all going to be selected at the same time? Because my thought is if they have to be reinstated or um, at the same time, there's going to be a big discontinuity if all of a sudden a new batch comes up. Yeah, it's a good question, but the indication is that we're not actually expecting them, all of them, to make it through the whole six years. So there you have your staggering right there, because somebody's going to make it, they're going to stagger, that's right, I mean, sorry. Um, You know, after X number of years, they're going to not want to do it anymore, or they're going to move, or be called into another ministry, or something's going to happen. And so you are automatically going to have, you know, a rotation, a a staggering system. So um, these are good questions. Um, between the elders and that of the congregation, the uh, congregation would have the responsibility to vote on certain key issues listed in the bylaws, such as membership, discipline, annual budgets, large expenditures, new staff positions, etc. Those things are listed out. Uh, Andy Wynn, I think, went through that with you, and they're listed in the bylaws as well. The elder, elders operating within that structure will exercise God-ordained leadership for the congregation, which follows that leadership which follows that leadership according to biblical uh, principles. So we've said this many times in the last few weeks, but that's how it works. In other words, we don't believe... I'm sorry, let me say it positively. We do believe that it's possible to mix together congregational polity and plurality of elders. We actually think there is a way it can work. And we're not the only Baptist congregations that think so. Okay? They actually, we, we think we can find a way to make it, to make it work. And, and basically that is that the church has the right to establish men as elders and then passively watch over their ministry to be sure it's biblical. But then all that time, as it seems biblical, as it seems right to follow that leadership in the Hebrews 13:17 pattern. That's the general approach. If on some point you disagree, um, you can come and ask respectfully. We have discussions. The elders can consider issues, etc. Um, you know, there are going to be points of doctrinal discussion, etc. doesn't mean the elders are wrong. doesn't mean they're necessarily right. But it doesn't mean that the congregation can throw off a submission to God-ordained authority at that point either. So there's a way it can work. And so uh, I don't think that it was right for Baptist churches to throw out plurality of elders 
because they couldn't figure out how they could make it work with congregationalism. Susan. Um, Six B. All right. Right. Those are my words. They're li- it's listed in the in the bylaws. Okay, specifically. Exhaustively. <laughs> Actually, it's not even exhaustive. It does, and any such matters as may be brought to a vote. I think it says so. It gives the congregation, you know, certain rights to bring things up. But well, we just say if um, we decided, well, like the projectors, mm-hmm. would that have been something the elders would have decided, or would that have been brought to the congregation? Um, well, I think that you know, and it was uh, a large. Ex- a large, a large, no, 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 I'm, I'm just to finish the thought. It was a large expenditure, okay. and therefore it, ne- it really would have needed to be brought to the congregation. Okay. It was a lot of money. Would you envision that the elders would not proceed with something if there really was not, I mean, if there was a lot of division the congregation would be able to not? Well, you know, you would hope so. You know, you'd hope that the, that, the congreg- that the elders' relationship with the congregation would be such that, you know, they're not going to, uh, that they're going to shepherd the flock. And so, if you know, again, that's that's the sense that I have, the the great sense of encouragement that I have about waiting on on voting on this uh, to August, and and not trying to vote on it in May. Uh, it was just a sense that I had that it was too soon. That the church wouldn't have had enough time to think about it, and that another three months is a good thing. We've made it all these many years without plurality of elders. We can make it three more months. And I think that that's right. And the reason that I felt that was a sense of connectedness with the church and with other leaders. And I think, Susan, that that's the spirit that the elders should seek to operate in, a shepherding heart toward the church. All right, tell you what, um, since this is exactly what the Q&A time is going to look like, except that you'll have more chance to interact, why don't we just pick up some more of these things next time, uh, which is in two weeks, not next week, but two weeks during the general Q&A time. And and get the word out. You know, um, I really... I don't want anybody to say I didn't know there was a Q&A time on on the document. I didn't know there was a Q&A time on plurality of elders. We really want people to come. Um, it's going to be an hour, not four hours, not even 90 minutes, just an hour, you know, but we'll have a, a chance to, to talk about it, okay? Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you for um, the uh, things we've discussed, and I pray, Father, that as we continue to learn and grow as a church, that you would lead us to where you want us to be. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here and for the privilege of serving at this time and in this church. I'm grateful for it, and I thank you for this evening and our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.